When the U.S. Marine Corps recruits reach the end of their basic training, before they ever step foot on the battlefield, there's a peculiar test that they must all go through. It's, it's not a particularly easy test, if any of you know. In fact, probably it's the very hardest test that anyone in this country ever has to go through. It's simply known as the crucible. It's an experience that's designed from one end to the other to literally make it or break it for you. Physically, mentally, morally, in every way, it's designed to break you. Over a 54-hour period, the recruits for the U.S. Marine Corps march 45 grueling miles, carrying heavy loads. They complete strenuous exercises. They solve problems together as a team at a tremendous pace, all with very, very little food and very little sleep. The strain tests the recruits to their very core. But at the end, those who make it through become some of the most elite members of the U.S. Armed Forces. Now, when I signed up to go uh, with Adventist Frontier Missions, and uh, this this little fact I'm going to share with you a little tidbit, um, I, I was I was kind of sworn to secrecy on some of the details of this, but I'll t- I won't tell you the details. I'll tell you the in general. At the end of the uh, AFM training that both the career missionaries and the student missionaries went through, they had a small crucible. It was actually a crucible, just like the Marine Corps. Not quite as not quite as long, but it was quite the experience. I have to tell you. Now, I've, I've never trained in the, in the U.S. Armed Forces, and I know there, there's quite a lot of uh, rigorous discipline involved in that, and I can't say I've ever been through that. I think some here have. But I have to say, it was an experience I won't soon forget. Over the course of quite a few hours, more than a day, I don't recall exactly how long it was, we walked and walked, and walked, not just a walk in the park, but slogging through difficult terrain, carrying heavy, awkward objects, um, doing things together that we never thought we'd (laughs) be doing, um, teamwork. um, Some of it was stuff that otherwise would have been fun and exhilarating, but the way that it was oriented and you didn't know from one day to the next or one hour to the next what you were going to be doing. You were just simply following orders, very little sleep, very uh, primitive circumstances. Like I said, it was designed to make it or break it for you. And I remember even seeing some of my fellow student missionaries and myself inside too, um, literally going nuts because of the strain and the, the emotional and the mental and the physical strain that was, was put on you. It was designed, of course, to simulate what real life conditions are in the mission field before you spend thousands of dollars in training and plane tickets and going over there only to have someone go nuts. Um, 
and it was a very, very good experience looking back on it, but uh, I didn't think so quite so much at the time when I was going through it. The crucible. I think the most frustrating part of the whole thing was not knowing what was going to happen next. Just being told, okay, march. Okay, pick this up. Okay, do this. Oh, why? And, and I always want to ask why. And I always want to make excuses. And so that kind of brings me to the title of the message today, which I've titled simply, No Excuses. No Excuses. And we're going to look at the life of a man who is facing the crucible of his life. We're going to hear some of the excuses that he made and how God answered those excuses directly, verbally to him. We'll look at what God did for him and how he will do the same for us today as we face crucibles in our own lives. Now, several weeks ago, those of you who remember who are here, uh, I shared with you a message entitled Pictures of God. And in that message, we looked at the call of Moses. We looked at how he was going through the wilderness. He was tending his father-in-law's sheep, um, and he came across this bush that was burning. And he, in this bush, this burning bush, he encounters God. He sees a picture of God, and he communes with God. First, in this encounter, God says to him, Take off your sandals. Then secondly, God calls to Moses. He says, I will send you. And God gives to Moses his identity. I am. Tell Israel, I am that I am has sent you to them. So God gives to Moses his identity. What more questions could he ask? And we kind of left off at this point last time. This this picture of God as the great I am, a beautiful picture, not only of his self-existence, that he always was, he always will be, and he is in the present, but not only that he is, but that as Christ said, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And that's where we left off in our last, last message. That's kind of a bit of a recap. But going on, and if you turn with me in your Bibles to this passage, we'll be looking through the story here in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. But turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 16. God begins to tell Moses exactly what is going to happen. Exactly what's going to happen from here on out. And wouldn't that be kind of nice to know? He says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. He says, Go to the elders Tell them all about what's happened here. Your encounter with me in the bush. God is telling Moses this. Tell them about this encounter. And he goes on. And in verse in verse 18, Then they, the elders, they will heed your voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So, he says, not only go to the elders, but he says, the elders are going to believe you. That's the first step. That's a good step, because the first time he tried to deliver Israel, 
by himself from the Egyptians. No one, no one believed him and were ready to betray him to the Egyptians. That's why he had to run for his life for 40 years into the wilderness. But this time the elders are going to believe you in verse 18. And then you and the elders of Israel go together and go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Let Israel go into the wilderness to worship God. But in verse 19, it's very interesting. God God sees into the future now, and he's telling Moses what's going to happen before it takes place. But I am sure, verse 19, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. God says, go to Pharaoh, ask him to let you go, but I know already that he won't. So, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And he goes on to to describe there in verses 21 and 22 how not only will Pharaoh let Israel go, but the people of Israel will plunder the Egyptians and they will go out with a great substance. So God tells Moses, this is exactly what's going to happen. What excuse does he have? I mean, wouldn't that be really nice if you think about it? Just to know, I mean, God comes and he gives you your call and he says, this is what's going to happen. Boom, 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 boom. Hold your finger there or put your, your bookmark there at Exodus. I want us to turn over. We're going to be kind of going back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament. I know you are familiar with this story of Moses. So um, I hope we won't get confused by jumping back and forth a little bit. But turn over to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And I want us to see a few parallels between these these uh, particular passages here. G- notice God has just gotten, gotten through telling Moses everything that's going to take place with, with his encounter in beginning to l- deliver the Israelites. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in Mark about what's going to happen in the future. He's called them, come and follow me. He says to his disciples in Mark 13, 5, Take heed that no one deceives you. Don't let anyone deceive you. I know the truth, Jesus says. Take heed that no one deceives you. And in verse 9, go down to verse 9 with me. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And this gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Wait, 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 wait. Um, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear some good news. But this sounds pretty terrible. Be, watch out. They're going to deliver you up in front of the synagogue. That's, they're going to drag you in front of church and question you. Why are you believing in Jesus? You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake and for a testimony to them. And this gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Jesus foretells to his disciples not a pretty picture, but a a dramatic and perhaps even dark picture of their future. We love to quote verses from the gospels of the, the, the beautiful and the pretty things and the nice things that are going to happen. But when we read Christ's words, we see that yes, There are trials in the future. But is it any wonder, Jesus says in John 15, you don't have to turn there, uh, you can if you want, John 15, 
18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We are Christians, are we not? Followers of Christ. Verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Sobering thoughts, indeed. And we know, of course, what happened to Jesus just a short while after. Not only was he persecuted, but he died on a Roman cross. But let's go back to Exodus. Keep your finger there in in Mark. We'll be coming back there in a second. I'll put a bookmark there. Go back to Exodus. Continuing from chapter 3, we'll go on into chapter 4. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses begins making excuses. He says, "Uh, but, But what if? What if they won't believe me? Verse 2, so the Lord said, what do you have in your hand? Now, what was Moses at this time? Who was Moses? He was a shepherd, and he was carrying a rod in his hand, and God says to him, cast it on the ground. Okay, so he threw it on the ground. But he couldn't expect what was happening next. That rod that he was, he'd been holding it in his hand, probably, probably used the same one for several years. He'd, he, he knew that rod. But that rod instantly turned into a serpent, a snake. And it says there in the end of verse 3, So he cast it to the ground and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Now this wasn't just that the there was a little mirage and the rod started wiggling a little bit. No, I mean this was a full-fledged, real live snake. And Moses is running from it. It's coiling up and writhing there. I mean, you've seen a snake just seen it coiling and coiling and coiling. It just makes, gives, gives chills down your spine just to think about it. So Moses is running from this snake. Now God says to Moses, reach out your hand, reach over there and pick it up by the tail. Now, have any of you ever tried to catch a snake before? I, I remember when I was a, a kid, I was probably, I was probably Johanna's age. Johanna, have you caught snakes before? <laughs> Maybe. You touched one, yeah, yeah. Well, I was about your age, Johanna. And uh, my friends and I would go down to the creek with a five-gallon bucket, and they were going to catch snakes, and I was going to be with them. And so we we were looking for these little garter snakes. They were harmless snakes. So we would go down, and we'd go under the bushes, and we'd go, and there'd be a snake, and I'd get about this close to it, and I'd chicken out. I'm like, I'm not gonna touch that thing. <laughs> but they would get down there and I'd grab that. And it, Johanna, if you catch a snake, where do you grab the snake? You grab it right behind the head. If you got a little stick, maybe you can kind of pin it down to the ground by that spot, by their neck, right behind their head, and pin it down, and then you can grab it and you can hold it, right? But Moses didn't pick that snake up by the head. He picked it up by the tail. He did something that under normal circumstances would have been, would have been suicide, really, to, to pick up a deadly snake by its tail. Any snake, really, it's going to strike you. But he picked it up and instantly it turned back into a rod in his hand. 
Whoa. Whoa. But that was something else. Keep your finger there in Exodus. Let's go back to Mark. I'm actually going to skip over from Mark 13. I'm going to skip over a couple chapters. We'll come back to Mark 13. But Mark 16 is 17 and 18. That's not three chapters. That's chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And these signs will follow those who believe, Jesus says. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. And they will recover. We are called to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. To call others from a life of sin and service to Satan into a life of godliness. To crush that serpent and turn it back into a rod. My friends, what does a snake represent in the Bible? We were just talking about that in Sabbath school. Who was in that snake in the Garden of Eden? Satan. Now, is, is Jesus telling us here that we can go pick up snakes by the tail? That we can play with the devil? No, I don't think that's what it means. But do you suppose, do you suppose there's a lesson here for all of us who are going out into a world that is filled with sin, that God, by his grace, can protect us when we go on a mission for him? Even if it's as dangerous as taking a snake by the tail, that he'll be there with us. And that snake will be as harmless as if it was just a rod. Turn with me over to, to Genesis. One more thing, thinking of that snake. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God says, speaking to the serpent there in the tree, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is it, my friends, that gives us power over the serpent? Is it in ourselves that we can take that serpent by the tail? Or is it in the fact that Jesus has crushed the head of that old serpent? And because of this, in Jesus' name, that serpent is powerless over us. But then God says to Moses, puts your hand down in your bosom. He puts his hand down in his bosom, he takes it out, and he has leprosy. Puts it in again, takes it back out, it's gone. My friends, what were the two miracles that Jesus did most often in his ministry? One was casting out demons. The second was healing. Healing the leper, healing the blind, healing the lame. My friends, has God given us, as his people, a ministry, a, a health message and a ministry to go and do the same deeds that he has done by bringing health and healing and new life to people who are in need? So Moses, he's got these signs, and he, the signs are, are not the deliverance in themselves. The signs are signs to Pharaoh to say, look, I am God. Speaking through, speaking through Moses, 
This is the God of heaven and earth. You'd better listen because judgment is coming upon Egypt if you don't. Moses goes on. Or I should say God goes on speaking to Moses. Another sign. He pours out water on the ground. We find that here in Exodus chapter 4. We can turn back there. We'll be there for, for a few verses. He pours out the water on the ground. And the water from the river turns into blood. I think the symbolism here could go a couple different ways. Of course, we speak of the blood of Christ to cleanse us from sin. I I think, too, that the river, the water of that river, was a sacred water. And, and of course, this this discussion here leads into, when, in the actual fact, these couple of signs were the first signs that Moses gave to Pharaoh, the Egyptians. But it continued, and we, we see all of the plagues of Egypt, one after another, being a direct uh, a, a direct affront, in a sense, to the religion and the worship of the Egyptians. They worshipped this river, and yet this river, the water became blood here. Uh, first, first, just the part that Moses poured out, and later in the plagues, the whole river and all the water of Egypt turned into blood. But you would think after all of these signs, you would think that Moses would have no more excuses. Wouldn't you? I mean, if, if I was Moses and God is saying, okay, go and talk to the king. I'm like, no, no, no. Okay. Well, after all this, I think maybe I'd go. Verse 10. Moses says to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech. And of a slow tongue. Lord, I can't talk. It's always been my excuse. Lord, I can't talk. I don't know how to talk to people. I love this next verse. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who, who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord, Who made you? If he made you, I mean, you're here right now. You're breathing. You're living. You are a testament to the fact that God has made you. And if God has made you the way you are, or the way you think you are, don't you think that he can change you if he calls you? If I've made you, surely I will be with you. Now therefore go, he says in verse 12, therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. God is so patient, isn't he? Moses keeps on making excuse after excuse. It's not that he's just trying to get out of it so much as as that he's just saying, Lord, I am inadequate. I can't do this on my own. And every time Moses says, Lord, I'm inadequate, God says, I will make you adequate. I will give you what you need. You don't have the influence. I'll give you the influence. You don't have, you don't have the credentials. I'll give you the credentials. You don't have the, the, the ability to speak. I'll give you the ability to speak. I'll be with your mouth. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 13. We'll go back to Mark. Mark 13. 
And we'll continue there in that in that passage that we just read. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations, but in verse 11, But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The promise to Moses, God says, I will be with your mouth. Jesus reiterates the same promise to his disciples. He says, go and I will be with you. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to speak. There's no excuse, my friends. There was no excuse for Moses. And there's no excuse for us. But Moses tries again. He tries one more time. He knows he's facing the crucible of his life. And he says to God, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whom or ever else you may send. We're, we're back in Exodus, by the way. Back, back in Exodus chapter 4. Please send someone else, Moses says. Now, at this point, Moses crosses over a line. Up until now, he's been praying for strength. He's saying, he's been saying, Lord, I am inadequate. I am inadequate. Make me, give me the, what I need to fulfill your commission. But now he says something else. Lord, send someone else. I can't do it. Up until now, Moses has been saying, I can't. But now at this point, Moses turns around and points his finger at God, so to speak, and says, God, you can't. You can't make me able to deliver the people of Israel. And up until this point, God has patiently responded to Moses and said, I'll give you what you need. I'll I'll do everything for you. But at this point, we find here in verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God becomes angry with Moses. Why the sudden change? It's because now Moses is pointing his finger at God and saying, God, you can't do that. I don't believe that you can do that for me. Moses had no more excuses. He points his finger at God and says, I can't. But God gives him one more response. He says, okay, I will send someone else. I will send your brother Aaron to go with you. He will speak for you. But you're still going. You're not off the hook. Yes, I'm going to send Aaron too. But you're still going. And I'll be with you. I'll teach you. I'll tell you what you need to say. You can tell Aaron and Aaron can speak for you. Since you said you couldn't speak, you can, Aaron can be your spokesperson. So Moses has no more excuses. And so he goes, just as God commands him, with his rod in his hand, to face the greatest crucible of his life. And so, my friends, you may be asking, what does this story have to do with us today? I mean, really, we're not Moses, after all. I'm not Moses. Isn't this just another nice Bible story to tell the kids about someone that served God a long time ago in a faraway land? Tales of heroes once upon a time. Or is it possible that there's an important and critical message for us in this verse, in this passage today? When Jesus called his disciples, did he call them to a life of ease? Did he say, come and follow me, and I will make you the richest of men? 
No. Did he say, come and follow me and I will give you a beautiful house and people will fall down before your feet? You will have power and influence. You will live a long life. Turn with me back to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 12. Now brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. My friends, Jesus called his disciples quite literally to a crucible. He speaks of a great, great tribulation. Verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. In verse 18, And pray that your flight may not be in the winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, he has shortened those days. Yes, my friends, God calls us not to a life of ease. But he says that there's going to be a crucible. And of course, this was many, many years ago that Jesus spoke these words. And the Christian church has gone through a great tribulation. For 1260 years during the Middle Ages, there was persecution. But in Revelation, we read of a period of intense persecution against God's remnant people just before Christ's second coming. A time when the powers of the world will enforce the worship of the beast on pain of death. And at this time, there's a small remnant of people described in Revelation 14 who will remain faithful to God. A small remnant who will declare the message of God's judgment against Babylon and who will call God's people to come out of her. God says, come out of her, my people. A small remnant who will remain to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Yes, my friends, if we believe that we are God's remnant people, then we must accept that according to God's word, we are about to go through the crucible of our faith. My friends, how will you stand? How will I stand? What excuses can we make? And it's not just the final crisis that I speak of here, but each one of us, at times in our lives, will go through a crucible of faith. I think of some dear friends of mine. Christina knows them well. Just recently gave birth to two beautiful but premature twins. And over the last weeks and months, have been going through, as it were, a crucible of faith. In seeing those little babies in an incubator, in a balance between life and death, day by day, up days and down days, good days and bad days. But God has brought them through. And I know many, many people have been praying for them. Friends, I don't know what your crucible is. But I want to ask you this. Are we wrestling with God in prayer, just as Moses did at the burning bush? Can you see the crucible before you? Sometimes we can. 
Sometimes we don't know when it's coming. But what are your excuses? Do you cry out to God in your weakness for Him to make you strong? Are you allowing Him to give you victory in the battle with that serpent? Are you experiencing His healing power to restore your life from the disease of sin? Has He asked you to speak a word for Him? Has He asked you to go, as it were, into the fiery furnace, to stand as a witness for Him? And claim His promise, my friends. Go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what to say. Friend, what is your excuse? There are no excuses. Don't say like Moses, Lord, send someone else. That's the easy way out. It's easy to say that. But let us not doubt who he is. Let us not question his ability to make us into his instruments, my friends. As weak, as humble, as erring as we may be, the only thing I can say is, yes, Lord. And he says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is it your desire, my friends, to go with God wherever he may lead? Is it your desire, is it your prayer to invite him to live his life out in you? If that is your prayer, I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing together, live out thy life within me. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, it is sobering to think of the call that you have given to us. Each one of us, we know, will face the crucible of trials. But Lord, we claim your promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Lord, be with us. Teach us what to say. Teach us where to go. And help us, Lord, not to make excuses, but to follow faithfully where you lead. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.